So if you know anything about, I'm, my name is Jason, by the way. If you're new and you're expecting Jen, that's not me. Um, and I understand it's deer season. So there'll be a conspicuous absence of Brandon for a bit until he solves his Bambi complex. Um, so you're stuck with me. So my name is Jason. I'm one of the full-time guys here at ANC. Um, and we're a church that refuses to back away from tough subjects and current issues, okay? Uh, I have talked to multiple couples, multiple people, whether couples or singles in the room, that say, you know, the first Sunday we came and tried it out was when you guys talked about this thing or that thing. And I remember almost every one of those things were controversial. They were very fresh in the news, and I wanted to back away and say, no, churches don't talk about that. I come from a school of PR that says, what you don't mention doesn't exist. Yeah, you know that school, right? It's called seminary. It doesn't, didn't really work. <laughs> didn't work. This thing's going to... You know, if it was leaning left, I'd be okay, but it's leaning right. <laughs> Laura. <laughs> Dang it. I know how to fix this is the thing. I know how to fix it. It's just awkward for you guys. Watch. Ready? But we don't, we don't shy away from things, and we talk about things, and we go straight at it. And that little brand of boldness, I don't know if it appeals to you, but it's frankly the only thing that has caught my imagination in church in decades. So it excites me. Um, we're going to look at, we're going to continue our series, and we're going to be in this series for a while. The times in the New Testament where Jesus quotes the Old Testament. And the reason is, is because Jesus is bridging these two great understandings, and he's doing it in a way that, frankly, left alone, we don't veer towards the Old Testament all that often. We kind of stick in the gospel. You know, some churches preach the Bible. We, we're trying to preach the gospel. And so obviously we're going to hover around. And that's not, I'm not being condescending to others. That's, we're going to hover around the words of Jesus. But where he brings the Old Testament in is very insightful. So we're going to continue that. And as much as this last week has driven us to think long and hard about what happened in Sutherland Springs, that's not the current issue that I'm going to draw from today. I'm, I'm, I don't even, I don't have words for that. I don't know if you do, um, but I don't have words for for, for that. I've heard they're going to knock the church building down and they're going to start fresh because how do you deal with 27 fatalities while you're having church? Uh, we're not going to talk about that so much, but we're going to talk about something that percolates through a very brief little set of words that Jesus uses in his Sermon on the Mount. You know, here's the thing is it's not even shocking to us anymore, so it, probably, it may have missed your attention altogether. It may have just kind of bubbled underneath, but did anybody catch the the global event that was initiated by the public confessions of Harvey Weinstein and his sexual abuse over a lifetime and the women are lining up to accuse and now they're, they're, they're talking about spies being hired to look into these women or whatever. The revelations about decades of sexual assault on women who worked for him really aren't even startling anymore. It's just kind of evening news for us. But if you need a little help and you don't know who Harvey Weinstein is, think Bill Clinton, think Bill Cosby, think you fill in the gap. What's new, though, is this furious chain reaction, right, that's happened around the globe. You guys know it as the Me Too campaign. That's what's new. It's happening everywhere. It's happening in newsrooms. It's happening in state legislatures. It's happening in halls of clergy power, God forbid. It's happening in the front offices of sports franchises. It's happening Everywhere, And maybe this means so much to me because I'm raising five daughters. Count them. Five daughters. And I'm raising them in a world that, thanks to terrible, horrible leadership and serial offending men who take what's not being given, and we call it, well, that's just boys being boys. Thanks to that world that we live in. 
it's almost a given now that they're going to have to deal with sexual unwanted advances in order to advance in their place of career, in their job. It's almost a given. You know, social science says one in six. Think about that. Look around you. Count six women. This is the reality we live in today. And I just have to say this. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. And I think today's message from Matthew 5 speaks to this. And Jesus, is, as he does, is going to tickle a couple of subjects that we, can, that we can draw from. So hang with me. I'm going to take the filter off. Brandon's hunting. Jen's somewhere else. She's going to take the filter off. You see, I recognize the trajectory, this global trajectory of this Me Too campaign. I recognize it. There's something familiar about it. It's called freedom, right? It's called freedom. And it's what we're made for as human beings, male, female, black, white, you fill in the gaps. All of us, no exceptions. You know, we may never see legal justice for perpetrators, but speaking out is setting yourself free, and it's happening around the globe, and nobody can even contain it anymore. You see, the majority of the men who do this in order to feel good are dealing with remarkable smallness of soul. I don't know how else to describe it. Pitiful, shameful weakness that manifests itself in taking power over women. But those who speak up are setting themselves free, and it's happening all over the place. And frankly, it feels like the gospel to me. You can say what you want, but destroying that secrecy and moving past that darkness, that hidden place where you suffered alone, this is the trajectory of the gospel. That's why it's so familiar. It's catching on everywhere. There are no exceptions, to quote Nicole Nordeman. Today's text is not about Harvey or Bill or Bill, or Kevin, Spacey, or whoever. But today we have Jesus speaking about a subject that, frankly, I dread, and it's the subject of divorce. But he changes the conversation about human relationships, and he does it in a very subtle yet revolutionary way. So let's read our text together. Matthew 5, verse 31 and 32 from the NIV reads this way. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife, now this is Jesus speaking, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now help me pray quick because this thing's going to tank with this verse. Holy Spirit, we desperately need your wisdom today. We pray that you would inhabit this place and speak to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. So don't panic. Hang with me. As you know, this is part of a longer teaching that Jesus is doing. We call it the Sermon on the Mount or the great IPO of the kingdom, whatever you want to call it. This passage on divorce follows Jesus' thoughts on adultery and lust, and they precede his thoughts on taking oaths, okay? So there's a context here. There's a context that he's getting at. He's going somewhere with this, like Brandon said last week. It's a bit of a manifesto, I would say. That's how I read it. Have you read any of those recently? It's kind of a big word. Anytime you put manifesto on anything you've written, it's either going to be great or nobody's going to notice. But it's a, it's, it, it's, there's big themes in the Sermon on the Mount. And I would say they, they hover somewhere around these two following points. Number one, it's, it's an underlining of our inability to fully comply with the law. There's just no way. Jesus says, you've heard this. I require this. Jesus says, you know that this is the thing. Well, I require this. So the first thing the Sermon on the Mount does, it illustrates our total inability to live in full compliance. We will all fall short. So don't feel smug. Point number one. Point number two, he's making the heart the center of transformation. In fact, he's making transformation the point of religion. He's making actual life differences the point of the whole thing, which it might escape you, but that's not terribly intuitive when you're in a religious system. Why? Because it's all behavior modification. It's not about transformation. It's about modifying behavior so that we can create a new tribe around all our new rules of behavior. 
So in the Sermon on the Mount, he's, att- he's, he's attacking any sense that we have that we are fully compliant with the law. And he's telling us the heart is the point, that thing deep inside. I defy anyone to fully define it. It's that thing from which life flows that's the point of transformation. It's humorous to me that most of the teaching, if not all the teaching in scriptures, come from Paul and Jesus, who were two single men. Come on, guys. That doesn't, that doesn't make you laugh? Jeez. I said humorous. That was your clue. That most of the teaching comes from Jesus and from Paul, even though they were both single. Even though Paul tells us, I wish you would all just stay single, given the, the work and the challenge and all the married people in the room said, mm-hmm, that marriage is going to be. I wish you would all stay single. But let's talk about, just briefly, the state of marriage in the Jewish world in which Jesus is teaching. By the time Jesus was teaching these words, the state of marriage had devolved so much that a man could divorce his wife for just about any reason. Now, we know the familiar ones, right? If she couldn't bear him children, it's clearly her fault. Shame her, send her back to the house of her father. The second one would be, well, if she was promiscuous, obviously, send her back. No recourse. Send her packing. What troubles me is that in the time of Jesus, the, interpre- the going interpretation of the Mosaic law even allowed for a woman to be sent home because she didn't cook well. Some of you guys need to shudder. They got YouTube for that stuff, guys. Come on, you can do spaghetti. It's not hard. But in the time of Jesus, they had so distilled the Mosaic teaching that for any reason whatsoever, the woman could be put away. Society was, and I'm going to say the P word, thoroughly patriarchal in every way. As it largely remains today. This is why I look at you over my glasses. I don't see you anymore. As it unfortunately remains to this very day. Do you need evidence? Sit with me. We'll listen to some news. It was patriarchal in the sense that women were still seen as something just above the value of property. Now, essential, of course, but could be put away for whatever reason. Men controlled it all. They controlled society. They controlled economic engines that created the well-being of family units and society. They controlled it all. If a woman were to be sent away because she was found to be displeasing to her husband, it's the end of her economic viability. Because the father raises the daughter and gets her married off very quickly so as to not have to feed another mouth. Jesus is speaking to patriarchy. And that's not to say there weren't some exceptions. They just happened to be rare anomalies. We could all mention the women of the ancient world who led and who did this and who did that. But in between those few mentionable points is where women existed at the time. By and large, during the time of Jesus, women could be turned out for trivial matters. And now we're getting somewhere. And I think this is what grieves the heart of Jesus, who sets all human souls free. No exceptions. You've probably already figured this out about me, but I'm a feminist. Right? I'm not even ashamed of it. I don't even wince. I can sit in a room of 2,500 women watching Jen preach and be totally okay with that. Well, there was one guy in the band, and I'm like, dude, we're stuck in a cage of cougars in here. (laughs) But I'm unashamed about it. I live with six magnificently strong and courageous women who will not be told that they have to stay home, that they have to stay anywhere for that matter. I'm describing who? My children. Beware, young lad, if you have cast eye on one of my daughters. If you're looking for a girl to fulfill you or to make you happy, keep looking. My girls, they might join you in the rugged adventure of a vulnerable and honest life, the pairing of equals, but they're not going to walk two steps behind you anywhere. I'm just telling you that. Don't even think about it. Keep looking. 
I'm a feminist because I think Jesus was a feminist. And so that's the end of the podcast and the end of my job. (laughs) No, but this is Austin. This is not just Texas. This is Austin, Texas. Here's the thing. I believe Jesus sets all people free. You know, he's pressed on multiple occasions to go on record as to what his thoughts were on divorce. And all he can manage to do is talk about patriarchy. You just have to know how to understand what he's saying. He sets all cultures straight. He liberates, period. Not just men, he liberates all. You see, women are not objects to be consumed for the happiness of men. This is the serial problem with men like Harvey Weinstein. He looks at the world crooked. Women are not less than men or less capable or less endowed with leadership or vision or wisdom or divine insight or any of that. Women are not all devotedly lurking on some balcony waving a hanky while their guy goes off to war to bring back the spoils and the glory. Some of the women are on the horse, in the armor, charging the front line. They are warriors. They are conquerors. Women are equally filled with the spirit of God to create and to recreate the world with every exhale Uniquely so, perhaps, I dare you name any other doorway to the planet. I didn't think so. It's exactly right. Only weak and feeble men see women as objects for their pleasure. Pitiful, small boys see women as things to be consumed or possessed or attached to their image or hung from their arm for their accolades. They do this to compensate. You see, men do this to compensate for their breathtaking inconsequence, their tragic smallness of soul and heart, their remarkable lack of anything worth considering considering truly male. Are those hard enough words for you? It's been a fun week. For this reason, I believe Jesus says, you cannot part ways from the wife with whom you are in covenant for trivial reasons. You cannot banish her to economic hardship simply because she no longer makes you happy. You see, he's attacking a casual, convenient, self-serving approach to human marriage. He's taking aim at patriarchy. Many of you have suffered terribly under punitive, shaming interpretations of this text because all that you can see or all you've heard preached from this text has to do with shame and guilt for something that failed that you may have been responsible for or maybe not. You know, it's interesting. In Malachi, the scriptures say God hates divorce. You know, the actual proper translation of that is God hates the man who opts for divorce. Or he hates, he hates when, when, when that is the option. It's not whether he hates you. We know this not to be true. But most of us have only heard this from a shameful lens. You'll notice, I don't seem all that concerned with the technicalities of guilt and who's to blame in this passage. I'm not obsessed with who's forcing who to become an adulterer. Mostly because Jesus just taught an adultery and he left it hanging in such a way that no one gets to feel smug about this. When when the standard of adultery is anyone who looks upon something that does not belong to them with desire to have it is guilty of adultery. Apparently adultery is not the conversation here, is it? You see people looking for ways to to resort their tribes and to push people out and say you're damaged and you're in and you're no good and you're better. People looking for those finding these texts reasons to shame, but we know that's not the gospel, don't we? That runs cross-grain to the gospel. Jesus is not talking about adultery. He just had that conversation. He's setting someone free here. Why are we all managing our appetites to shame others and to make them feel like they are less than us? Why are we in this place? This is what Jesus is addressing. We all struggle with lust continuously, only every exhale. 
We all want what isn't ours, don't we? Right? We're all adulterers. Besides, in Matthew 19, when pressed on this, by the, by the Pharisees, they literally corner Jesus and say, what do you say? What, what's your interpretation of the Mosaic law? Can a man get divorced for any reason? And Jesus says, the only reason Moses put that in the law was because of your hardness of heart. That's the point. It's not about shame. It's not about brokenness. You see, this is what Jesus draws to himself. The broken, the wounded, the forgotten, the economically challenged, what he pushes from himself are those who can spew nothing but shame and guilt. It's the trivial reasons for breaking human relationships that Jesus is aiming at. We could go into Matthew 19 for the sake of time. We're not going to do that. But Jesus, is, they, they, they try to squeeze him on this. They try to squeeze him because they have a sense that they can get a contradiction out of this man, that he'll actually contradict the Mosaic law if they can just nail him down. I'm not worried about who makes whom an adulterer. We're all in that seat. That's not my concern with this verse. But I'm fascinated by Jesus' efforts to liberate the women in this teaching. To advocate for their equal treatment and to bring them dignity in the face of patriarchy. Make no mistake, this is a powerful corrective to the teaching of the time of Jesus. You see, Jesus is tickling the mechanics of good, lifelong, covenantal relationships. He's teaching, this teaching is the death of trivial, casual, convenient commitments. It's the end of that. Jesus is going to say that is a sacred person you are joining your life with. As it turns out, this young rabbi is not going to let any of us get away with thinking that any human relationship with any human being is something to be dismissed. John the Baptist, or John, John the Apostle, John the Beloved will go on to say, there is no such thing as love of God that does not by definition begin with love of your brother and your sister. I believe the takeaway today is this, and here's where it's going to get difficult. Lean into your marriage. Don't walk away from it. Hear me now. In a profound way, that relationship will reshape and redeem you. Now, obviously, I know it's the work of Christ that redeems you. Yeah, but there's no other longer look at you than marriage. It's the greatest school of formation you will ever willingly sign up for and get dressed up for and rent a beautiful venue for. Some people, myself included, wonder, the LGBT community has been fighting so long for the dignity of marriage, and I wonder, do you guys know what you're signing up for? (laughs) Jesus is going to say, those things are sacred. Hear me. If you're in a marriage that is full of abuse and violence, I'm not talking to you. That's not what I'm talking about today. When I say lean in, I'm not talking about that. If you're in a situation that is literally crushing you, get help. Let's figure that out. If your spouse has been unfaithful and is unwilling to repent and is unwilling to change and make amends, I'm not directly referring to your situation. If that's you, you need help. We know people. We know counselors. Let us help you. Let us help figure out how you can have some of those conversations and work your way through that. But if you're simply managing, and this is most of us in the room, managing discontent and dissatisfaction, here's what I think you need to consider. Married relationships are the hardest thing you'll ever be asked to build. You know what it's like? It's like building a sandcastle where the waves crash. And you got to rebuild it. And then you got to rebuild it. And tomorrow you get to rebuild it. And then you get to rebuild it again. And you get to rebuild it again. You get the, you get the point. But it's the most rewarding thing you will ever do. Why? 
Well, I'm so glad you asked. Listen, let me stack this on a theory that I've come to really believe is true. For some of you, this will be a quote. For others, I'll leave it nameless. But I think everyone and everything can be your teacher if you let it. Everyone can be your teacher if you let them. Every situation can be your instructor if you allow it. I mean that. Every person you connect with offers you the opportunity to what? To better see yourself. To better understand what's inside of you. To better understand where that transformation needs to happen. Others offer you the chance to deal with you. That's the reality. And if this is true, this little theory that everything can be your teacher, which I absolutely think it is, then legal covenantal marriage is the nuclear option. It's the big enchilada. It's the perfect storm. It's the deepest, longest stare into your soul that you'll ever be given the opportunity to take. Have you figured this out yet, newlyweds? I've officiated some of your weddings. Have you figured this out? That the person who tries to change their cherished loved one in order to be happy, oh, but you don't know, I'm going to change him or going to change her, eventually runs up against the revelation that happiness is your own work. That's your work. Their being happy is their work. That's not your job. The reason we don't abandon inconvenient, unfulfilling, boring, challenging, tedious, tricky, complicated relationships is because they offer us our best opportunity to deal with ourselves. That's why you have buttons. What are the tripwires for? To reveal you so that you can deal with you. You see, all the great spiritual masters of all time have tried to teach us the same thing. All the answers are inside. All the answers are inside. Exactly none of the great fixes of the angst deep in your soul are external things. Exactly zero. You can go to Fiji on a dream vacation and be absolutely miserable, just like you can sit at your kitchen table in total release and total peace in the midst of turmoil and occupy a deep, ecstatic, comfortable, calm center. You see, it's inside, isn't it, right? The answers we seek are the ones we have. It's the things in front of us. This is what Jesus is saying. You can't just put people away because you're tired of this, because she burned the toast, because you don't like how she cooks you know, the mole or heats up the tortillas. You can't, there, there's no such understanding of human relationships that survives the liberating force of the gospel. You see, because hers is a voice just as yours is. Hers is a world just as yours is. And oh, by the way, her being perfect and built according to your specs has absolutely nothing to do with your happiness because you know what? You'll be on to the next thing as quick as you get her. Jesus is addressing the heart. He's addressing where we actually live. The answers you have are the ones you seek. No quest needed. When pressed by the religious establishment, Jesus chooses to put the silver bullet in the head of patriarchy. You don't exist, girlfriend, to make some guy happy. If you hear him say that, back up. Throw on that backup alarm, find your daddy's house, and rethink that. Oh, you just make me so happy. Guess what? That's not my job to make you happy. All right, I'm going to wear that out. I'm going to stop on that. Here's what I'm thinking. Some of you are here today and you have walked through a failed marriage. For some of you, it's fresh. For some of you, it's so long ago you barely remember. But if you feel shame and guilt and if you still limp your way through your current relationships as a result, hear me, be released. 
Notice this is not a shameful teaching from Jesus. This isn't about who's to blame. That's never actually the gospel. That's usually religion. But be released. Be free. Now, don't deny pain. Don't deny the work of grief. Do the work, but don't ever let it define you. Find your voice. Find your wings and rise up. If, if this is part of your story, set yourself free. Listen, you are not your thoughts. You are not what you've done. You are not the same as the smoldering heap of your life's failures and fumbles. You are redeemed in Christ fully. And while pain is real, it is not you. You are different. You are the one who experiences that pain and that loss and that victory and that freedom and that liberation and that breakout. You are the one who experiences those things. You are not those things. If you're in a marriage that feels dry and dead and hopeless, and if you can't remember the last time your heart heart was open to the one that you are betrothed to, that means married, teenagers. Thank you. I just tried to define things for you. I promised somebody I wouldn't do that. Of course, don't ever ask me not to do something because that's exactly what I'm going to do. Watch, they'll all throw up in their mouth simultaneously. Watch, ready? I am way too old to not step in that. I'm sorry. I'm no longer the curator of cool, so I'm just going to make it fun. For those of you who don't know what that is, that's called a dab. A dab of this, dab of that. I know, stop, right? Stop. (laughs) Somebody call Brandon. Mayday, mayday. (laughs) Listen, if your marriage feels dry and dead, and if you can't remember the last time you felt safe and open and cherished, ready girls, and pursued in your marriage, and that doesn't just go one way, if you can't remember the last time you felt those things, if you can't remember what it felt like to be wholehearted in the presence of this person, now is when to act. These things don't get better on their own. They don't fix themselves. They're like transmissions. Doesn't fix itself. Hear me, if Allison and I, as your pastors, can sit with you and connect some dots, we are here if, if, if we can help you face the storm, knowing that your worth and your value are not actually up for grabs, whether this fails or doesn't fail, if we can help you sit in that place and connect some dots, we are here. I'll better, I'll better that. If we can pull down the broken vases from the pantry shelves of our own lives, the ones that are super glued together, and show those cracks to you in a way that offers you hope, that's why we are here. You see, we've done almost everything a couple can do to wreck a marriage, and we are still here. And I'm not telling you that to brag. We're almost 25 years in, and I'm telling you, those cracks, if they can give you hope, you can have those conversations. We can have that. We are open books. You know what? Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Be kind to yourself. It's highly likely you entered marriage without a good playbook, just like we did. Had no foggy idea what it took to be well-wed, to be well-married. 24 years ago, we were nothing but naivete. You gotta lean in as you go. You gotta never stop looking deeply at yourself and you have to never, never misunderstand where the pain is coming from. It's coming from things that are within me. We gotta never stop leaning into our only example of unconditional love, which is the love of God. So if you've survived a shipwreck in the past, release yourself. I mean it. Some of you need to stop listening right there. If you've survived a a failed marriage in the past, release yourself. If you're currently stuck, Release yourself from the shame of not actually knowing what to do next. It's okay. We're all in that place. 
Release yourself from that shame and then get active. Get busy. But release yourself from the shame. And while you're at it, release your loved one. Release that person who you were married to or who you're in relationship with from the unbearable load of making you happy. Release them. That's on you. That's your work. We've said that. Take that off of their shoulders and watch what happens. Release them. Oh, and while you're at it, if you've been praying for decades for God to change your spouse or to take things away from them or to miraculously do something different, release God from not answering your prayer. Release yourself. Release those people and release God. Jesus is given the opportunity to talk about divorce. Jesus says, you don't put each other away for trivial reasons. We've got a lot of thinking to do. These things are the fabric of how we see the world. This is a thoroughly patriarchal culture. If you need evidence, I'll help you figure that out. And we need to be free. And we need to love with whole and open hearts. And there's the person in the room who's got it figured out. So if you're ashamed that you don't, welcome. Welcome to your new tribe. So why don't you join me on your feet? Band, why don't you guys come up? One of my big goals today was to be shorter than Brandon last, year, last week. By the way, we don't pick these texts from nowhere. You know, we're, we're following a bit of a thread through the New Testament, and I'd rather talk about almost anything than this, than divorce. Well, maybe lust. Brandon got that last week, but. People are getting free. And the irony of ironies is that sometimes as people of truth, we're the last ones to set ourselves free. So I don't know how to pray for you today. I don't know what you need today. I don't know the right words to say so that something connects for you. So I'm not going to be tempted to try to figure that out. But I think as a, as, a, as, a, as a church, as a group of people, we can all just say, God help us. God help us. If you can imagine how your life might be better, then you need to build that. And it starts with you. So if, if, unless your life is perfect, in which case, just sing some songs and you're done today. For the rest of us, we need to beg God, help us. Help us. So let's just do that. Holy Spirit, we don't have words to make this any more real than just to say, do what you will with us. Have your way with us. Make us grateful. Make us hungry. Make us willing. Give us the grace to do the work in our soul. And change the polarity of our lives so that we can embrace the things that provoke us as things that offer us an opportunity to see you deep, deep, deep in the inside of who we are. In your name we pray.